Welcome to Media Majors, a podcast about major media. I'm Liam Sr. And I'm surprised. That was very quick that we jumped into this. You'll see why. Okay. Who are you? I'm Tom Lockney. Uh, Each week I tell a story about movies and TV to Tom. And each week to Liam, me tell, talk, story about game, internet, the culture. All right, I'm going to use uh, understand all languages. It's a spell I picked up from Dungeons and Dragons, so I'm going to translate what the fuck you just said. You're going to put a babble fish in your ear. Sure, that's a reference that I, as a human being, understand. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know it well enough. I saw the movie and thought it was all bad. Like, I assumed that because of the movie, it meant everything associated it was bad. I didn't learn until later that it was just a bad movie. <laughs> the books are fun, I think. That's what I've heard. Right as in if we're wrong. Uh, usually we do an intro, but I kind of wanted to forego that because mm-hmm. uh, we're this is kind of a, a, a special episode. It's it's a good theme. Each week we pick a theme to center the stories around, and today's theme is that the auteur theory is a fucking nightmare. It's bad. It's bad. It's a farce. It's a farce. Um, but you know. I didn't want to just talk about the auteur theory as a story because that's boring, mm-hmm. and I'm better than that. <laughs> we're but we listen. We're both better than that. Yeah, we're we're like the auteurs of podcasting. This is episode ninety two or some ridiculous, <laughs> redonkulous bullshit. I think I figured out what works and what doesn't. Um, but to give some context for the stories, we're gonna talk about it a little bit. And my phone charger is going to work so that my phone don't die. Perfect. Um, but yeah, to give some context for it, we're going to discuss it a little bit. So the auteur theory is just the idea that uh, you ha- the director is the captain of the ship that is the movie. And he, he not only directed it, but he wrote and he produced and he maybe even acted. It's all this one person. That there is that there is like a singular figure and that their like vision is what is like perfectly realized. That there that there's like no distance between the 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 director and the product. You're watching a Tad Jenkins production, and you know <laughs> that this is this is this is just blood from Tad Jenkins. Exactly. Uh, it came out of um, French films in the '40s because there was the French New Wave. You can look into that. This is a very like we're just touching the teeny teeny tip of the iceberg. But French New Wave, the creators felt that. It was hard to make a movie on their terms because of how the the early studio systems all work. So they had a lot of control and people, uh, film critics referred to them as auteurs because a lot of them would also do the sound and the editing and the this and the that. And they would just wear a lot of hats, which nowadays is not that uncommon. Like directors work their way up from other roles. It's not unheard of for an editor to become a director and even vice versa. The thing is, is that while it was a kind of like cool and new thing in the 40s, it soon became the Hollywood system. By the 60s, people like Woody Allen and Jerry Lewis caught wind and, and just, you know, started doing all the things in their movies. And basically now there are two types of directors. There are directors that aren't considered auteurs, but still make really great movies and the directors that are. It feels like it feels like it the, like auteur as a term changed from being like descriptive to prescriptive like oh this person this person just like does all the things the auteur like is a word that just means that this one figure encapsulates a lot of roles whereas now 
it's more like, oh my goodness, this one person, despite the fact that they rely on the labor of a, a ton of other people, uh, is responsible wholly for the tone, etc., of the the film, game, whatever. Which leads into my next point with this is that movies are made with a bunch of people. They're called a crew. Um, mm -hmm. They're supposed to be paid, and the auteur theory uh, is kind of a re it's it's not a concrete reason, but I think that the auteur theory is a lot of where a lot of scuffles between unions and stuff comes from because people like the grips and people like the lighting and the sound technicians, you know, don't really get the recognition they deserve. And when you add in an auteur, an auteurist or whatever, I refuse to credit them as an auteur. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it just kind of complicates that. It also leads to a lot of toxic masculinity among the film world because when men think they're really good at stuff, mm -hmm. it usually goes to their heads a little bit and bad things happen. That's why all kings were bad. <laughs> and well, and it's very easy to like create an auteur in the modern sense because if you don't tell somebody, oh hey, like you've got you've got like a real eye for like cinematography, but like you are a terrible sound editor. If you don't tell them that, then then they'll be like, oh, I'm I'm a good sound editor too. I'm all these things. I'm an auteur. I'm amazing. Why are you challenging me? This is my vision. Yeah, it's what I like to call film school boy syndrome. Yeah, yeah. It's one film of bro. it's one it's one type of film bro, and it might be one of my least favorites. <laughs> you decide. They're all bad. Um, the auteur theory is dangerous. It belittles all the hard work that crews do, and it furthers their subjugation by the businessmen of Hollywood. Unions are important. Anyways, let's start my story, because I'm going first. Uh, we're going to talk about a director that people consider an auteur, uh, but really it's m more going to be sort of like a, a grand tour of how this man is dumb and bad. <laughs> the grand tour of the auteur. Uh, we're going to talk about a little shipbird named Lars von Trier. Oh, boy. Um, oh, Lars. Oh, Lars. You've been in the news, I understand. I see da, why da, da, Liam da, da, picked da, da, your story. Much like skincare, I am topical. <laughs> Lars von Trier. Born Lars Trier. So already. Wait, like, really? He added the von, yeah, huh? Dude. Didn't sound enough like a villain. <laughs> Or a wealthy landowner. Mm. Same thing. I'm Baron von Trier. There you go. He is a Danish film director and screenwriter with a prolific and controversial career spanning almost four decades. His work is known for its genre and technical innovation, if you say so, Internet. Confrontational examination of existential societal and political issues, again, if you say so, Internet. And his treatment of subjects such as mercy when... When? when has that when? happened? Sacrifice and mental health. He is also a uh, fuckass. A real yeah, shithead. Yeah. A I know a thing or two about Lars von Trier. I know enough to know that I don't like him as a person. A sack of useless carbon that should be thrown in the trash. <laughs> his de depiction of women alone in his media. Like, um, is, is rank. It's just gross. Yeah, it's real bad. He's super prolific, though. Doesn't that suck when the, the, when the <laughs> shitty ones just, just so make many. a bunch? 
Uh, he's worked with steadily since the 80s with actors such as Kirsten Dunst, Nicole Kidman, Shia LaBeouf, Willem Dafoe, Udo Kier, Charlotte Gainsborough, more than once. A lot, yeah. She's been in a lot of his pictures. Uma Thurman, and many, many more. He's also a terrible person who should never have picked up a camera and who should have jumped in a lake filled with hungry, hungry hippos. In 1995, Von Trier and Thomas Winterberg presented their manifesto for a new cinematic movement, which they called Dogma 95. Always quick note, to, hold on, oh, man. may I just say, quick note, it is never, ever, 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 ever a good idea when white men have a manifesto. Yeah, yeah, never, never, never. Thank you, Marshawn. Especially when it's a manifesto about art. God, what in, in a manifesto that include that is titled Dogma would bad oh, man run away. Uh, Vinderberg said that they wrote the piece in forty five minutes, and the manifesto. Are you fucking kidding me? Gets worse. The manifesto initially mimics the wording of French Francois Truffaut's nineteen fifty four essay, Un certain tendance du cinéma français. Uh, which was in a French film magazine. So not only was it written in less than an hour, which rewrites editing. It is shorter. That took shorter than a network television show. That's shorter than an episode of Riverdale. Yep. Uh, They also stole it from a French magazine. (sighs) All right. The goal of Dogma Collective is to purify filmmaking. Never use the word purify in a manifesto. This is manifesto tip number 101. Also, what is this fucking gatekeeping? Oh, cinema... Cinema's not pure enough for me. I don't know why I just did a Woody Allen impression for that, but you know what? French Woody Allen. Different that. Woody Allen is basically a French pervert that's uh, a criminal. Um, So they thought that filmmaking had had a reliance on special effects and post-production and other gimmicks. So their film wanted to concentrate on story and actor's performance. I want to die. Uh, and here were the rules, which they referred to as the vows of chastity. Are you fucking serious? How did people immediately not go like, hey, 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 what are we, what are we really talking about here? Uh, I bet every woman who heard it immediately (laughs) Immediately, did, my friend. (laughs) Number one, shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. If a particular prop is necessary for the story, a location must be chosen where this prop is to be found. Two. The sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. Music does not occur unless it occurs where the scene is being shot. Why would we, yeah, why would we want to be able to, like, hear and understand things? The camera must be handheld. I just like that. Are you serious? Yes. Why? Any movement or immobility attainable in the hand is permitted. The film must be in colors. Number four, special lighting is not acceptable. If there is too little light for exposure, the scene must be cut or a single lamp be attached to the camera see this is the thing like these things i don't think are like inherently bad if you personally are like this is how stylistically i make movies but to release this is like if you don't make movies like this you're beneath me is fucking i'm not so sh- shitty. No, no, the rules aren't the rules aren't the worst thing i just want you to know that there are rules that they these two made up it's yeah. going to be important I, and, and i think <laughs> in made 30 up, seconds i think made up is such an important part of that sentence also you're gonna hate rule number eight but rule number five is optical work and filters are forbidden number six the film must not contain superficial action murders weapons etc must not occur wait but wait, I, I, but what but, are we gonna do but number seven temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden the film must pay, pay, take place in the here and the now here's the thing is like 
Lars von Trier breaks all these rules. We're going to get to it. Number eight, genre movies are not acceptable. Your movie can't what? be about it anything. It can't be about anything. It can't have. What? They that mean specifically mean? like no horror movies, no monster movies, no oh, sci-fi movies. Oh God, God forbid. We make elevated. I, this is my Lars von Trier impression from now on. We make elevated horror. It's not very good because he does. You don't sound. He does Danish. not sound like that. But I can't do a Danish accent. The, and frankly, not gonna try. Nine. The film format must be Academy thirty-five millimeter. And number ten. The director must not be credited. That rule, I think, all movies. I, yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that's good for a Lars von Trier pick. Frankly. Um, so Lars is credited on all his movies because he is neither a man of substance nor character nor decency. He uses uh, CG in Melancholia. He uh, oh, they not only broke these rules later on, but they both broke it with the next two movies they made. Nymphom- like they broke broke rules. Nymphomaniac is 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 like uh, uh, Charlotte. Narrates to Peter. <laughs> literally, Skarsgård, literally, like... the first Dogma '95 film ever made broke rules. My, my guy. <laughs> then why even make them? Why fucking? Why? They can't even commit to their dumb shit. So now we're gonna look at some of my personal favorite of Lars von Trier's oeuvre, in which I mean movies that should not have been made. Yeah. Or things that happened around movies that were made. We'll start with his most heinous work, The Idiots, a movie where people pretend to be mentally disabled. Yikes, what the fuck? That's the entire plot in the movie, my dude. Synopsis. A seemingly anti-bourgeois group of adults spend their time seeking their inner idiot to release their inhibitions. They do so by behaving in public as if they were developmentally disabled. That... It, uh, yeah, it's even, incredibly I've, offensive. Because I've, I've, I've seen a bunch of his movies because a lot of people have hyped them to me, and I've never seen or heard of that one. And that is like, how do, how do people get their start doing that? You know, like how does that, how is that your stepping stone to fame? The '90s were a really good time for provocateurs. Yeah, it was time and place. You know, bigots, bigots. I, well, bigots. Let me. Well, no, I meant for, for audience-wise. Like they wanted to see someone. They wanted to find provocateurs that, who are bigots. Provocateur is just a fancy way of saying bigot. Like a a lot of the time. Yeah. Milo Yiannopoulos calls himself a provocateur. Let's not use their language. Fair enough. Uh. So I don't want to go into what the movie's about. Because yeah, we don't. Just... I don't think we need to. I think I, think I we summed should... it up, right? Yeah, I think we should reject the premise. Uh, I want to bathe in hand sanitizer. I didn't edit this one, so a lot of my <laughs> Liamisms are still in there. On our next stop of Lars von Trier's A Whiny Little Shipbird Tour took place in 2011 during a pref con... <laughs> In 2011, during a press conference for his film Melancholia, a movie that answers the question, is anyone happy at a wedding? And the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) But before we talk about that, a little background on all Lars. Um, In 1989, Von Trier's mother told him that uh, his... Sorry. In 1989, Von Trier's mother told him on her deathbed that the man Von Trier thought was his biological father was not, and that he was the result of a liaison she had with her former employer, who was descended from a long line of German-speaking Roman Catholic classical musicians, so that she, her son, would have artistic genes, which is eugenics, kind yeah, of. Yeah, that's, no, 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 yeah, yeah, I, you will have superior genes is eugenics, that's the other side of it. Here's how Lars reacted to that when he learned that information. 
Until that point, I thought I had a Jewish background, but I'm really more of a Nazi. I believe that my biological father's uh, German family went back two further generations. Before she died, my mother told me to be happy that I was the son of this other man. She said my foster father had no goals and no strength, but he was a loving man. And I was very sad about this revelation. And then you feel manipulated, and you really blah, 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 and he calls his mom a slut. Yikes! Uh, <laughs> what the fuck, dude? <laughs> I barely also, lean on also, that one. also... By definition, not she. She she fucked a man for his genes, which is very intentional. Yeah. which is not what people you're, commonly ascribe. You're using that word wrong. For. Also, I think you're just hating. I think you just don't like your mom, and I think you hate women. I feel Lars. like we also glossed over the fact that he learned that he was German, and his initial reaction was, was, "I'm not Jewish." He was also and I'm a Nazi. Not how Germans what? work. Von Schur's mother considered herself a communist while his father was a social democrat. Both were committed nudists, and Von Schur went on several childhood holidays to nudist camps. That has nothing to do with the rest of the story, maybe a little bit later on, but I just thought it was an important bon mot that I talked like about. a family of very strong personalities. His parents regarded the disciplining of children as reactionary. Which is why he, which is why he, that's why he does stuff now, because he, he, he's used to getting away with stuff. Uh, anyways, during the press conference, he's asked about his German roots, and he says, quote, For a long time, I thought I was a Jew, and I was happy to be a Jew. Then I met Danish-Jewish director Susan Beer, and I wasn't so happy. But then I found out I was actually a Nazi. My family were German. <laughs> Again! Oh, my God. And that also gave me some pleasure. What can I say? I understand Hitler. I sympathize with him a bit. It so, is so... And then, hold on, hold on. The, 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 the moment continues because uh, uh, Von Trier qualified... Von Trier, sorry. Yeah. Von Trier qualified... Did you from the top? Von Trier qualified that. I don't mean I'm in favor of World War II and I'm not against Jews, not even Suzanne Beer before digging himself deeper. In fact, I'm very much in favor of them all jews well israel is a pain in the ass but oh my god <laughs> he's fucking good at talking so next to him kirsten dunson so, so he's just pissing everybody off pretty now. much and next to him are kirsten dunson charlotte gainsborough who both wish that oh yeah, both yeah. are trying to do magic to teleport seen, out of the I've room i've seen this interview and kirsten dunce is has the the look of of somebody who goes i'm not gonna work with this guy ever again uh, now how can I get out of this sentence, says Varcher? Okay, I'm a Nazi. You did it, buddy. It is... Uh, every day. Perfect every social day, interaction, Tom. Every day, it is so unbelievably easy to not say... To not declare that to you're not a Nazi? To not say you're a Nazi is like some 101 shit. Like, like we some have... Zoe 101 shit. Mm, yeah, yeah, because you know what? Not a Nazi. Are you a Nazi, Nazi dear? I'm not. Boom. This is a Zoe 101 joke for all you Zoe heads out there. Jamie Lynn Spears, we miss you. We do. I love that show. Mm -hmm. There was a there was a fun uh, episode where they when they invaded the boys' bathroom and made the urinals pretty. And frankly, all the boys were pissed off, and I didn't That's get dumb. it. That's dumb. That's unrealistic. Because every me? single guy I know would have been like, "This is much better." You're telling me I get to pee on a tiny water wheel and make it go around? Oh, I would thank love you. that. Thank yeah. you, Jamie Lynn. Thank, thank you, Jamie Lynn. Um. Now, the video of that interaction that Lars von Trier has and says in a room filled with oxygen and people recording is great for Kirsten Dunst's face alone. Yeah. Man, is she a treasure. Lars von Trier is less of a treasure and more the equivalent of human boat rot come to life. <laughs> 
His next picture was just as splashy and flashy as can be. The five-hour sex movie, Nymphomaniac. In two parts. It featured a mix of the penis and the vagina. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Hey! Um, where was I? Penis and the vagina. Penis and the vagina. Nymphomaniac. It featured a mix of simulated sex and actual sex, prosthetic vaginas, and it's five hours long because Lars doesn't understand pacing. I I actually have seen this movie. I saw it in college because I knew somebody who insisted that it was brilliant. And I like I I did not have like I like I, I did not have like fantastic opinions in college. I'm a much better person now. And even back then I was like I think that this movie has like a really negative attitude about not not just like women, but just sex and sexuality in general. There's a oh man, hey by the way, I'm gonna spoil the movie because it doesn't matter. But at the end, um, Skarsgård plays a supposedly ace character, and then at the very at the big twist at the end of the movie is that he tries to fuck Charlotte Gainsborough. Um, because because all men want sex, ultimately, so says Lars von Trier. And so she uh, kills him. Uh, oh, my God. There are so many scenes in that movie. There's a scene where she's like a <laughs> yeah, girl movies with tend a friend. Yeah, a lot of scenes. And they try to fuck as many dudes as they can as a game. And whoever fucks the most wins a bag of candy. And, and they were editing. They're like, and not only is it like a, a ideologically horrible film, but like, He's a talentless filmmaker. They're editing mistakes in that film. Like there and people always be like, well, but he meant it because he's an auteur. And like that's the problem, that's, right? That's... Is that the reason that he's able to make these things and get away with being a a, a, a poor craftsman is because people uh because because auteur is prescriptive. Because people see things and assume it's all intentional, you know? Ugh, Apparently, Willem Dafoe's wang was so big that it made him uncomfortable, and that's all I wanted to talk about. <laughs> Literally had nothing written down about the scenes. We weren't going to talk about any of it. I just wanted to bring oh, it up because God. apparently uh, Willem Dafoe's big peen made Lars von Trier uncomfortable. Maybe that's why he crushed it in Antichrist. Oh, man, wait, is that why he crushed it in Antichrist? I bet you well, it Well, no, because he hadn't seen it at that point. Antichrist is another is another film. We'll get to that, it. I'm gonna, I was going to bring it up when we talk about the violence. It's all about how women are scary. Because they because they feel sad that they their children die? They are, because they wear creepy Freddy Krueger masks, and they tap your shoulder when you're reading a comic book, and you turn around, and they scare you. And it's the thing that my sister did to me in England. It's really <laughs> funny, actually. I was reading, we were at, like, a, a Forbidden Planet, and she, like, found a Freddy Krueger's mask and saw that I was reading a comic, like, across the store, and then walked over and just tapped me on the shoulder. Kind of the That's very good. Your sister's got a, a very unpoint dark sense of humor. Yes, she does. Um... So, so yeah. So, um, before we go into this next section, uh, trigger warning, violence, descriptions of violence scenes. I thought we'd be okay. Like, I thought I wouldn't have to do it. And then I read the descriptions yeah. of the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Antichrist, I, 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 I've known about for a while. I'm obsessed with that movie because yeah. it's just the silliest. Um, but it's the, the, his newest movie, Wowzers. Um, Varn Trier has, like, a thing with violence. Uh, in Antichrist, he crushes Willem Dafoe's peen. He just he actually he crushes his balls, and then uh, Charlotte. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Charlotte Gainsborough jacks him off until he comes blood, like a cannibal uh, corpse. Because song. because uh, women are terrifying because men because uh, men are attracted to them because um, heterosexual men are attracted to them. Yeah. 
I, I, I think I think that's right. Like as a heterosexual man, I'm almost positive he's right. <laughs> I think I need to watch it a couple more times just so I can fully understand. Fully what he's really get to say. what he's getting at. I think yeah. what he's really trying to say is, um, this fox is scary. <laughs> Look at this scary fox. Ooh, um, what does it say? Women are terrifying. I'm cutting that out. We do not talk about that. What does the fox say? Joke's on you, motherfucker. This is my turn to edit. Ooh. Is it? Mm-hmm. You edited the last one. Did I? You did. Hmm. If you want to edit this one, I'm not going to stop you. I was kind of, yeah, because I was just going to, I was going to do it this weekend. I oh, had to set time to edit it. Go for it. it. Um, now, Lars has done the can-can dance before, which is he's been to, to can. Uh, I just thought that was a fun joke for me. And he's actually won a couple palms there as well, but his latest movie was screened out of competition. Well, didn't he, didn't he get a lifetime ban for the Nazi comments that was rescinded because of this, that was rescinded for this movie? Maybe. I th- I'm pretty sure that's what happened. It did not come up in my research. Okay. Um... Because I think I think everyone was just more confused than mad at him, which is the incorrect thing to be, uh, except for Kirsten Dunst, Kirsten who was the Dunst correct who emotion. Knew that this I'm was bullshit. so glad that you and Jesse Plemons are uh, are have child. I think that's the correct term. You are no longer with child because the child is alive now. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I'm a het man. Um, so his latest movie is called The House That Jack Built, which is not a good title. That That is literally a line from Tom Cruise's major motion picture sci-fi vehicle, Oblivion. Lovely. The House That Jack Built. He plays a character named Jack, and there's multiple lines about the house that he built. Now, The House That Jack Built was screened out of competition because it featured Lars von Trier's laser-like focus on serial killing, mm. specifically women and children. <laughs> Hit that skip button. Uh, people walked out of the screening, which had a ton of press because people were like, ew, this is going to be shocking. And then they went in and got shocked. Everyone who walked out, I say to you, what the fuck did you think? What the fuck did you Why think? Why do we keep giving him a platform? Why do we keep letting him You're premiere You're part con? of the problem when you walk out of a Lars von Trier movie as a media person in a huff because that's what he wants. If of all, if all, if you go and you walk out, all you need to write is is um, uh, a very short one sentence, two sentences, depending on your punctuation you use, is it was bad, do not see it. My friend, that is what he wants. I say... Just sit through the whole movie and don't say anything about it. No, because that, I mean, like, what then what the fuck are, what are you supposed to do with trolls and and, and bigots is, is, like, not react to them and not... poison Lars von Trier over time, but he makes his dumb movies. But but then he keeps getting to make dumb movies. If we, if we but keep if he letting gets him mad, slide... He'll say more dumb things, and then we can send him to that island where we say people who say dumb things out loud, but too. But then the other option is that we don't say anything, and he keeps getting funded, and nobody says anything, and the status quo doesn't change. I think if no one reviewed his movies, he'd just get really pissy, and no one would want to fund his movies. He's a troll with a with there's a, a, di- a bankroll Yeah, yeah, but machine. you're talking you're talking about press. Where there's a difference. Yeah, I'm specifically talking press. about press. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Don't don't review it. Do cover it and say that it's bad. You don't need to get into detail. Just you just say that it's not good. You don't need to say it. Uh, the the scenes that seem to have prompted the majority of walkouts is when uh, Matt Dillon, main character, 
shoots two kids in the head at a family picnic with a rifle. And in another scene, he slices Riley Keogh's character's breasts off. And in a flashback, it shows a child removing a duckling's leg with a pair of pliers. I saw that scene in the trailer, and I was like, what is this movie? Oh, the trailer is set to fame by David Bowie, which is... Oh, my God. Do you get it, Tom? would have been very happy Do you get it? Do you get it? Because it's like, we make serious soldier killers famous. Fame. Right? It's a great trailer and a smart movie. Um, also, there's archive footage of concentration camps because Lars von Trier knows exactly what he's doing all the time. I can't take I can't take him seriously. He's like he's a terrible he's a bad person he's a bad person and he shouldn't get to make movies which is why he's a little whitey baby in the corner making swastikas out of his poop. Yeah, which is why it's good to say that he's bad, which is what we're doing right now. In typical not mad fashion, Lars has said that people didn't hate his movie enough. <laughs> what a doof. What a piece of what a bad person. <laughs> he's so he sucks so hard. What a bad person. Oh god, I hate him. IFC is still gonna distribute the house that Jack's house <laughs> Jack's house. Look at the look who's jacking it now. <laughs> uh so hey, you can be the judge. I know I won't. Uh, and I'll end it with this. Gaspar Noe loved it and apparently cackled out through it. Oh, <laughs> which is which Yikes. is just which is alarming. Which is just no, but it, it makes sense. <laughs> Gaspar Noe's new ad campaign for his newest movie is man, you hated all my other movies. You're gonna fucking hate this one. And guess what? People are like, actually, this is maybe the best one you've done. Oh man, I love. People whose entire goal is just to shock people. It's not. Well, his goal is not to shock people. It's not. It's. I mean, like. Oh no, no. I'm talking. I'm not... talking about Gaspar. Oh, no, yeah, at yeah, this yeah. point, <laughs> whose goal is literally just to shock people. Still not good. Still bad. And honestly, it's I always bad. I also it's literally doubt never. His, I doubt that his motivations are just to shock people because because they never just to make because, money. Cause no, because they never are because those people don't put those things in those movies because they think that they're bad and they want to throw out bad things. They put it up there because they want to make money off of their shitty ideologies. You know? Also, I can't think of an entire... Of, and in, the, in, like, history, I can't think of anyone who's done the shock value for shock's sake and it's, like, been good or worked. Well, and I can't think of a single person who's done the quote-unquote shock value for shock's sake that has not later been, like, actually, that thing that I said was just shocking, I also believe. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. But can you can you think of any piece of art that was, like, oh, this was clearly meant just to, you know, just to be shocking, that people are also like, and you know what? It done did the damn thing. Golf claps. <laughs> Golf claps around. Not a single one. Don't think it does. Add from another show, be back, you know. Back in history class, did you ever take a step back from that textbook you were reading and just think to yourself, man, these people are very dumb. Hi, my name is Eric McAdams and I have a podcast for you. It's called Big Time Whoopsies, and every other Wednesday on the Major Cast Network, I tell a guest, and you the listener, a story from history involving massive incompetence. Big time whoopsies. People are dumb, and history can prove it. 
Born 1975, Cliff Blazinski got his start in video games at the ripe young age of 15 with his independently created project Palace of Deceit. He was the sole laborer on the game, acting as designer, programmer, artist, and composer, and no shade, you can tell, the art was made in Windows Paint. The look and design is rudimentary, and the storytelling is fairly basic. Again, no shade, this was a game made in 1990 using accessible tech from that era, which was like not stellar. By one guy? By one person yeah. who was 15. Yeah. Two years later, in 1992, he submitted his next game, Dare to Dream, to Epic Games. To date, these two titles are the only projects that have been 100% the products of his vision and labor. While Dare to Dream wasn't a runaway success, I would imagine partly due to the fact that it was made by one dude who was 17, it did launch his career, landing him a job at Epic Games working on Jazz Jackrabbit. Yeah, like, there's nothing wrong with, like, one person passionately working on a thing that isn't like achieving what it sets out to because one person cannot do everything. I mean, like that's there's that's a, the fundamental underpinning of the auteur theory. I was gonna you say know? there's a difference between the auteur theory and like micro budgeting, yeah, or and, like and somebody, an artistic drive. Yeah, and somebody who just like doesn't have the money to pay people, and so they they have to pick up the slack. When it's when those things get conflated, that's when. And like, and also when people's like, I'm doing this for my brain ideology, that's when it gets murky. And when people see quality where it isn't, like if you went back now and played those games and went like, no, 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 he like intentionally made the art shitty, you would be like wrong and two, seeing something where something wasn't. Oh yeah, um, I'm a 15 year old. I made the art (laughs) shitty on purpose. Ah, 15! (laughs) Uh, this time at Epic on Jazz Jackrabbit, he works with other people and you can tell the art has style. It's well animated. One man with specific talents is not spread thin across others he lacks or is deficient in. Here's the full list of credits for Jazz Jackrabbit. Design, Robert A. Allen, Cliff Blazinski, Aaron Brucey, or, or excuse me, R. John Brucey. Lead programming, R. John Brucey. Animation, Nick Stadler. Additional graphics and artwork, Joe Hitchens, James Schmalls, Tomisa Starr. Music, Robert A. Allen, Joshua Jensen. Sound, Nando Ewig. Uh, or Ewig, maybe. Producer, Mark A. Rain, Tim Sweeney. Manual artwork, cover and comic book, Nick Stadler. Manual design and typesetting, Mark A. Rain. Beta test leader, Andra, Andrew Lerfield. And German translations, the company Romware. Man, yeah. remember when you could finish a game credits in like 40 seconds spoken? Mm, probably not. <laughs> We're so old. We're ancient. And I barely remember my childhood. I remember your childhood. Eh. Eh. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Six out of ten. 5.5. <laughs> Tom's childhood. Pitchfork. They would never do such a round number. <laughs> Jazz Jackrabbit, for all its flaws, is well-remembered. It released in 1994 and became one of Epic's then best-selling titles. Is it, like, real jazzy? He's No, but no. he does have a bandana on his head, and he's a green rabbit. And, like, I think that's the jazz of rabbits, is when you make a rabbit green, you've broken all the rules. I think the jazz of rabbits is Woody Allen's weakest comedy, and he's a criminal. <laughs> I feel like every time I Sex mention him, I like yeah, ending yeah. it with him yeah, being a criminal. He, well, that's because that is not an untrue thing to say about Woody Allen. Yeah, look, Woody Allen and Charles Manson have a lot in common, one of them being that they are both criminals. Yeah. 
Uh, Jazz Jackrabbit is not a popular title because Blazinski worked on it, but because he and his team worked together to produce a vision that landed and stuck. It is weird and bad that we that we remember this as a Cliffy B game. Cliffy B was a nickname he went by, and a lot of people still like remember him as Cliffy B. It's a bad nickname. Yeah. Uh, it sounds... apparently was given to him by a bully, and he and he adopted it. I sympathize with that bully so hard because he just he's that bully never bullied a kid again because he was like I called him Cliffy B which we all agree is like a shitty thing to be called and he professionally goes by this now in addition to the contributions of the bottom labor there are three lead designers on Jazz Jackrabbit one of whom was also lead programmer and another who contributed to the music with other people. It doesn't make sense that we go, oh yeah, Jazz Jackrabbit, the Cliffy B video game. Regardless, Blazinski's career advances as it should. He's done good work on good games, just like the rest of his team, and he joins onto a project that would eventually become the first Unreal game. Now, does he consider Jazzy Jack, Jeff and the Rabbit Bunch yes. a Cliffy B game? Yes, he does. That was what I was worried about. Again, lots of people seem to remember the first Unreal as a Cliffy B game. I... Do not know why games are made by games are made by teams of people. We know this. I thought Mario made all the games. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, Luigi makes all the games, and that's why he's and not. And Mario in any of gets them. all the credit. Yeah, I know. Him and Shigeru. Mm. That's right. You guys are on watch. The cycle continues. He works on popular and well-received games, and then 2006 rolls around. This is the year the first Gears of War comes out. This is really where his identity as an auteur is crystallized in the eye of the gaming public. Like, when Jazz Jackrabbit came out, people weren't like, ah, this hot young auteur, Cliffy B. Look at these green rabbits with bandanas. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Gears of War came out. Uh, not only is he working as lead designer, a position that is vastly overcredited. Not, and, like, not to say that those people do not do work, but, like, they do not do all the work. It is overcredited. It's like how some people assume that dir the director also is the writer because they, they just did it, you know. Exactly. Overcredited by the gaming community at large, by the public. Uh, but he's also a spokesperson for the game. He's the guy going on G4, speaking at E3, giving interviews, making the press rounds. Call me Cliffy. Do I have to? I kind of want to call you a cab to leave my G4 studio. Hi, I'm Greg G4. I'll just call him B. B3 on If G4. you're nasty. I think this points to a broader problem within the games industry and PR. I think a lot of reverence is granted to game devs who also act as public faces. People like Todd Howard, David Cage, Hideo Kojima, and even, like, even though he's not really considered an auteur, somebody like Randy Pitchford. Can I ask a question? Yes. Doing you looked up auteur theory on the Wikipedia, did you just copy the three video game names that they picked at the bottom? Because you picked the did three, I? You picked the three examples that they give for video game auteurs. That's hilarious. Hideo Kojima, David Cage, and Todd. I did not. I did not check the. Wikipedia oh no! I for those. I, th I think that's so funny because <laughs> leave it to the nerds on Wikipedia, the, the where they've like democratically decided that those are the three we talk about. Yeah. And the one everyone likes. The one everyone hates. <laughs> Skyrim! <laughs> uh, we're even experiencing this a little bit right now with God of War's Cory Balrog. No. No, 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 no. No. No, no, I just got his name wrong. I just got his no. name wrong. It's, it's, it's Barlog. It's Barlog. Oh, it's definitely Barlog's Cory. Barlog's still good, but, oh, man. It's Barlog. It's Barlog. Okay. I'm so sorry. I need, uh, to, I need a moment, because for a second, I, I, was about to buy, I was about to buy every God of War game. 
because of like well the guy's name is Balrog and he makes God the God of War games. Yeah. I can't not support him. Like like a good example of this is like uh, Barlog made uh, like in an interview he made an offhand comment being like yeah like I got some loose plans for my more God of War like I, if I really needed to I could make like five more games and fucking the press was like Cory Balrog has plans for God's five God. more. Did I say it again? Ah, Barlog has plans. You shall not pass, Corey! Boy, I have plans for five more games. I shall be your dad yet. Run, you Todd Howard. (laughs) Well, yeah, like, he just said it offhand, and everybody was like, well, he said it, so it's gonna happen. And, And, like, no, he's not... That's not how it works. That's not how it works. I'd like to quickly... Uh, interrupt with a pitch for a new podcast within our podcast called yeah. I Want to Be Todd Howard's Best Friend, where each <laughs> week we try to figure out how I can get in the same room as Todd. Regardless, Gears of War is f- f- mostly considered uh, like Cliffy B's game, which is ludicrous. By comparison, it's ludicrous work, Todd. It Luda. <laughs> The Jazz Jackrabbit credits took about a minute to run through spoken out loud. The credits of Gears of War, rolling blocks of test, text in the game take about 4 minutes and 30 seconds. Did you speak them out loud to yourself? No, no, no. I, I just uh. watched a trailer. <laughs> trailer, YouTube video. God, I've been ruined. No, no, that's not what I'm laughing at. I'm laughing at me thinking, did Tom look up the credits and time himself reading them out loud? Which you obviously didn't do because you're not an insane person. Oh, Cory Corey Bar- Barlog worked on it. So did David Cage. <coughs> so did David Cage. And, oh, wait, what's this? Anita Sarkeesian? Well, is three finally that. buried the hatchet? I do not understand how people think Gears of War is Cliffy B's game. I do not understand why people call it that. I think one of the most stark examples of Gears being a product of several collaborative visions lies in the character designs. Gears of War, for those who have not played, features the fucking beefiest dudes. They're so beefy. In the history of character design, they do not, they do not look, everybody, like, there are human beings that look like the people in Gears of War, but everyone in Gears of War looks like it. It's not how people look. It's definitely like, they're on some Rob Liefeld shit. I was, yeah, and it also, it it's almost as if they were like, what if Solid Snake was really solid? Yeah. Ooh, like a rock. Like a, I, the term thick actually comes from Gears of War. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> These designs do not appear in any of what are thought of as Cliffy B games before or after the Gears of War franchise. Like, the, like it doesn't make sense that people are like, yes, this is a is a Cliffy B title. This thing with this one character trait that does not appear in any of his other games, it's a Cliffy, Cliffy B game. But when you take one look at the lyric artist, a man named Chris Perna, it makes total sense. Liam, can you describe what this man looks like? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Um, just a real broom of a man, like a real He's twig so of a gentleman. Big. This dude looks He's like so if he looked at me, he, I would get crushed. He looks. He's like, beefy. He looks like Tom Hardy in Warrior. You want to try that again? Tom Hardy. No, no, you got that part right. In Warrior. There you go. Warrior. You gotta do. You gotta really lean into that Boston, even though I'm. Is it set in Boston? Uh, it might as well be. I th- no, it's set in Pennsylvania. The Boston of, of literally, Pennsylvania. Literally, I, I watched it with Maddie, and we were like, it's so funny that movies think that, like, Pittsburgh and Boston are interchangeable cities. They might as well. In Pittsburgh, Boston, 
and New Jersey might as well just be like the same place in movie town. But and of course, Perna's just the lead artist. There's a team of concept artists, character modelers who have to realize those concepts in the game, animators who choose more beef. <laughs> All real thick cut. That's where it comes from. It's are, the opposite of my diet, and more beef. There are writers who assign them character and personality, and then there are voice actors who have to provide those takes on the characters and ideas. Like, Joe DiMaggio as Marcus Phoenix, like, really works well. It's good casting for him. I'm sorry, but I don't think baseball player Joe DiMaggio was the voice actor, but John DiMaggio, John DiMaggio. the voice actor, was pro. <laughs> Eric, Eric, this one's for you, bud. Tom thought he was Joe DiMaggio. But, like, he had to be cast and directed, and all these, like, steps had to go into making uh, Marcus Phoenix Marcus Phoenix. Autourism doesn't make sense. And this is purely visual stuff we're talking about here. If you want to feel for how individual programmers can rep can be responsible for distinct feels in games, listen to Waypoint Radio 106, former EA, I will not. Former EA game dev uh, Manveer here talks about making the cover system for Mass Effect Andromeda, which is like the most, one of the best and most distinctive parts of that game. And he talks about like, and, and it's so interesting to hear him talk about it. He talks about the way like management treated that game and why the story flagged while these other parts did not. It's it's very interesting. But of course, Gears of War 1 to 3 are remembered as Cliffy B products. Uh, credits of Gears of War 3 are over 10 minutes long, but it's still a Cliff Blazinski game. Like, wh what are we doing? Our best. In 2012, he would go on to retire from game dev, a retirement that would only last two years. Not a retirement. <laughs> Took a little nap. Yeah, it's, a, it's the Brett Favre of video games here. <laughs> Don't call it a comeback. Well, you weren't gone. Blazinski, Blazinski's return to game dev was met with much fanfare and he, as he formed his own studio, Bosky Productions. Interestingly, I'm sorry, what? Bosky Productions, yes. Bro, Interesting. bro. It, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's a bro. Is his is his right-hand man named Sully? Uh, actually, no, no, no. It was my boy Sully. Here's the thing. Interestingly, most press around the new studio is focused on Blazinski's presence at the helm along with Guerrilla Games co-founder Arjun Brusi, whose name you may recognize from the credits of Jazz Jackrabbit. He was, yeah, so former right-hand man, a right-hand man again. Hmm. There is no mention of any other staff, and I don't even mean by name. Because, like, not not everybody has to be in the public eye. I'm not demanding that, like, everybody know, like, who who did the Batman cape in Arkham Asylum. Although, frankly, that person, apparently one person, spent over a year on that fucking cape, and it's ridiculous to me that we don't know who it I is. I want to know who that is. They did a really good job. Yeah, they did an incredible job. And, like, again, Autor 3 does not make sense. One person worked on the cape. The that's Autor Theory. That cape is an auteur project. Just the cape. But, like, these pieces literally do not go any deeper than Cliff, Cliff Blazinski and Arjun Brissi. Like, Eurogamer, Polygon, Kotak, like, they don't. They don't go any deeper. They are, the press is complicit in this, you know? Yeah. The rest of history is frankly quick and simple. Bosky Productions creates a decently received arena shooter titled Lawbreakers that fails to find a sustainable player base. Regardless of how you feel about Lawbreakers' mechanical aspects, it is an extremely bland arena shooter that failed to read the current moment. It ha it's uh, flat-footed realism, it's lack of characters or world-building, and it's lack of forward-thinking game types all contributed to this flagging player base. I mean, like, right now... I, and not just right now, but 
even even old arena shooters like tf2 tf2 has like source filmmaker movies that that valve produced that fill out that world and give those characters character uh, it's clear that these negative elements come from a misguided sense of nostalgia for the yesteryear of PC shooters based in Blazinski's uh, own ego. Quote Blazinski, A lot of these kids playing Call of Duty, I don't think that they know what a proper arena shooter is. I, I, should, I should say, by the way, uh, these quotes come from uh, pre-announcement lawbreakers. Like, Bosky has been formed, and they're going to announce this project. Gotcha. So it's clear that, like, I mean, he's the fucking, like, CEO. This is his baby. This is his project. This is his ideas. Because he is be has been given the label auteur and has therefore been given all this power, even though, like, I, I haven't really gotten into, like, my personal opinion of a lot of his games, but, like, I don't think that they're very good. I made it 10 minutes into Gears of War before I was like, this is bad and not fun. Yeah. Some people think it's one of the best video games ever made. <sighs> And they're all 14, and they're all named Derek. <laughs> Blazinski is also on record as saying, I don't ever want to make a game that has a cutscene or a scripted sequence in it ever again. I mean, and, and like this is this is why that quote is important, because Lawbreaker does not have those, so it does not have anything for people to latch onto. Yeah. So it literally I mean it is, it is, it is perfectly divorced from any character. It is a Isn't that really big right now in games? Though? It is! Like, that's like Bioware's fucking thing. Well, I'm, I'm just... In arena shooters specifically, like Overwatch. Oh, sure, Over, sure, Like, sure. Overwatch has been in the cultural moment for a hot minute, and people Stop. love it Jesus. because it's because it has characters with plot of extra. They've got a fucking comic for Christ's oh, sake. I, I meant not, at, like, outside of arena shooters. I feel like games with an emphasis on stories and moments eh, that have to be scripted eh, is, like, I, they are They are popular, but they are not thought of as, like, as commercially viable. Like, Bethesda <laughs> is kind of, like, leading the charge for single-player games are not dead. And that has a whole host of problems with Bethesda and the way that they do business. But, like, single-player games are uh, out of hyper-capitalist vogue, let's say. I know I've said on the show that there's more to art than sales and markets, and that's true. I'm not saying that Lawbreakers is a bad game. I'm saying that when you're put in charge of a company and then your job is literally keeping people employed, you can't just make an ego project that's based in like your own incorrect opinions about what will and will not sell. You have to be willing to compromise because otherwise you go out of business, which is what Bosky did on May 14th, 2018. I think it's important to combat auteur theory for numerous reasons. For one, auteurism alienates labor from laborers, thereby erasing workers. Fighting auteurism also flattens the hierarchy of labor, meaning that the people who do the work are valued just as much as those who direct it. And also, it prevents men with reckless egos from growing into their own assholes. I have not mentioned it much, but Blazinski is not well-liked. Here is his Twitter bio. Washed up dude bro, game developer, or legendary creative genius. Depends on who you ask. Laughing face emoji, I love dogs. I wonder what he would say if you asked him. He would say, uh, well, it'd be hard to talk with, he'd be, his head would be stuck up his own urethra. He is a dude bro. Make, make no mistake, he is known for putting his foot in his mouth and being and kind of a tool. Head in a scrote. Though he's not washed up, I'm sure he's doing fine financially despite the closure of his studio. And there's one thing that I'll end on that I think really captures the essence of who he is. And I gotta talk about it because it's in such poor taste that I can't let it go. 
In Gears of War 2, the character Dom is searching for his missing wife. You find her about three quarters of the way through the game. She's emaciated and tortured into a comatose state. She's one of, I believe, four, three or four female characters uh, that prominently feature in the Gears of War games. This is the first time we've ever seen her. Uh, we really have not heard much about her until Gears of War 2. Dom shoots her in the head in what is meant to be a poignant euthanasia scene. Blazinski would later reveal that this was his statement on Terry Schiavo and the human right to death. Terry Schiavo was a comatose awesome. woman who... Uh, awesome. Yeah. I, oh, that's so good, Tom. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, her family fought her uh, pulling... The, uh, is pulling the plug... Yes. A, a kind of uh, uh, insensitive way to put it. I don't no. I don't know. No. Ending her life, uh, which I believe was her request. Yeah. Uh, they, which is... Yeah. The, the family was bad because Terry Schiavo wanted to be at peace and her family refuted it yeah it's not that the right to die is is bad it's that you don't do it with this incredibly like misogynist how the what did he think like the, what did he think the terry also, shivo thing was and about so how how on earth is anybody supposed to get that well well i think it, it also it's a, a huge misunderstanding of the terry shivo thing because yeah. it was not about the right of whether she should die it was about like she asked to this is this she is about patient to. rights what cliffy you have yeah. to realize that you did dom's, not understand this dom's wife is non-verbal she does not communicate this and it and it also is the the euthanasia trope uh about like women who are like kill me like which happens a lot and, and is a misogynist trope. God. Genius auteur, Cliff Blazinski. Yeah. Maybe it's a good lover. He just doesn't have a story. Anyways, that's that's I think that's going to wrap it for us this week. Every Although at the end of every podcast, we have a fun little segment that we like to call the self-care corner because sometimes we talk about frustrating or bad things and we like to balance that out with something nice that happened to us in our days our weeks or our lives. Liam, would you like to go first? I'm doing week? a weird thing after work tomorrow for my work tomorrow that will involve me getting very high. So <laughs> I'm really excited. Oh man, that's really nice. I'm very glad. I'm very glad that you live in a workspace that is comfortable with that. Me too. Uh, I don't know. My, my, uh, you know what my self care corner is? I don't. I, I don't. I don't have a lot of. I don't have a lot of money, so I save up a lot, and I don't get to go out very often. But last night, I went out and I hung out with some people, and I went to bar trivia, and it was fun. And I had like money to spend on socialization for the first time in months, and it was really good. And it was very nice, and I was very happy to have it. People are good. Yes, sir. Anyways, if you would like to follow the show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Media Majors Cast. You can email us at, at MediaMajorsPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. You can do that on your computer, or if you're listening on the podcast app on your phone right now, you can do that there. It's very easy. Scroll down on the show page and type in leave a rating or review. So the website probably looks different, or at least is in the process of looking different. I can check. Uh, when this comes out. Oh, Monday. when this comes out on Monday. Oh, never mind. Well, Putting should, my computer back into rest check. mode. Oh, no, I guess I'm going to turn my computer back on. Yeah, but we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from here. Uh, we have shows on the network you we should do. watch. Watch? No. 
listen, yes, we've got big time whoopsies. We've got Musty TV. We've got Kimmy. We've got Sonic Morning Hair. We care. We've got the entire back catalog of the Double X Files. And their new episodes, which are knockouts. Yeah, so, like, what are you even doing? We're at the end of this one. You can swipe delete and go check out the other shows, as far as I'm concerned. Plus, you'll have to re-download if you want to listen, and we get those numbers. Mm, sweet, sweet numbers. Anyways, thank you for listening, everybody. We love you, and we'll be there. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.